means uh, huge humanitarian crisis uh, because according to latest available data uh, nearly 7.5 million uh, Ukrainians fled Ukraine uh, since the beginning of this war. It could be that this spells the end for the Eurasian Economic Union. Hello everyone, welcome to Trade Talk, the podcast designed to help get your business growing with confidence. In this series, we tackle different aspects of economic activity through a mix of expert analysis and views from business leaders. Europe is currently grappling with a complex and unstable situation. The war in Ukraine has severe economic, geopolitical and human consequences. They have thrown the continent into turmoil and the countries closest to the fighting are bearing the brunt of the impact. I am today with three experts. Their insights will help you gain more clarity on what to expect in the coming months. Christian van Berg, you are Head of Economic Research for Northern Europe at COFAS. Hello. Hi. Grzegorz Sielewicz, you are Head of Economic Research for Central and Eastern Europe at COFAS. Hello. Hello. Tatiana Castouet-Vajon, you are director at the Russia and New Independent States Center at the French Institute of International Relations. Hi. Bonjour. Tatiana, how have uh, governments and people in post-Soviet states reacted to the war in Ukraine? All the responses have varied quite a bit. There is overall disapproval about what is going on. Belarus is the only country actually backing Russia and even then unwillingly after it was dragged into the war by Vladimir Putin and used as a base to invade Ukraine from the north in February. At the other end of the spectrum are Georgia and Moldova, which have condemned the war and picked up the pace in their efforts to join the European Union, with both Moldova and Ukraine being granted EU candidate statues in June. Between the two extremes lie countries that are very nervous about what is happening. They are scared, not just about the immediate economic, social and geopolitical consequences, but also about the longer-term ramification. They fear the prospect of a more fragmented world featuring greater geopolitical competition, which will not be to their advantage. Now, there is the added factor of Russia's partial mobilization, which has prompted waves of Russians to flee the countries that allow visa-free entry. The main countries affected are those in the Commonwealth of Independent States, such as Armenia, Kazakhstan and Georgia. They face a twofold problem, namely the challenge of dealing with the unexpected migration flaws right now, which is compounded by medium and longer term issues. How long will these Russians stay? How are they going to integrate? What will their relations be like with local Russian-speaking population groups? Almost 15% of Kazakhstan's population, for instance, is Russian-speaking, which is an extremely high percentage. From a geopolitical point of view, can we say that Russia lost some sway in a part of the world that has long been seen as its natural sphere of influence? This is a trend that has been underway since the fall of the USSR. Russia's influence in the region is waning, while that of other countries, including China and Turkey, is growing, particularly in areas such as business, finance and infrastructure construction. I believe that the war will speed up this trend greatly. 
As I said, post-Soviet CIS countries are frightened by what is going on. After all, they have their own security and political weak spots. Moldova, for example, has Transnistria, a breakaway region with a Russian military base where 1,500 soldiers are stationed. Two trends are taking place. On one hand, Russia is maintaining its military and security influence. It is a weapon supplier in the region, providing arms to both Azerbaijan and Armenia, for example, and remains a core country in regional organization. On the other hand, its influence is fading on a number of fronts, including language and culture, to say nothing of economic aspects, where China has seized the initiative. In my view, these twin trends are set to continue building momentum. We are therefore heading towards loss of power for Russia in Central Asia, while other players exert more influence. Countries in this region are keenly interested in multi-vector policy, that is, in creating a regional environment where major powers, such as Russia, China, Turkey, but also the West, are balanced in such a way that Central Asian states can preserve their sovereignty and territorial integrity. Grzegorz, what is the level of interdependence between Russia, Ukraine and the rest of Europe? And um, which countries in the EU are uh, most economically dependent on the countries at war? Well, I believe that currently we see that this interdependence for general Europe is quite strong, especially that we, Europe, we are dependent on Russian gas, also oil, but the latter uh, seems to be not as uh, so significant like it was previously, uh, as uh, it was somehow easier to uh, source it from other sources uh, than the Russian one. Here, not only the energy commodities are important for Europe, both Western Europe and Central Eastern Europe, we should also have in mind uh, that other commodities, here I mean mostly agricultural one, uh, remain very important uh, as Russia, but also Ukraine, uh, is a producer of uh, such commodities like wheat, barney or corn, uh, and that already uh, made uh, some adverse effects for global markets and also for European markets. Then going further, we have to also uh, remember about dependence on various uh, supplies coming from Russia, I mean here mostly metals. I think that uh, it leads us to the conclusion that the overall mix in terms of various supply uh, from Russia is quite strong for Europe. But on the other hand, uh, we've seen already that lots was done here to uh, replace those imports by other sources. And just to finish that, of course, we have countries where the, this direct dependence uh, is much stronger than other ones. And here among Central and Eastern European countries, I would mention uh, mostly Lithuania, uh, as well as other Baltics. Those are uh, former Soviet Union uh, countries, but also in case of other countries, like uh, mentioning, for example, Poland. Uh, Russia was the seventh biggest export destination for Poland, but with not so huge share, reaching below 3% of total exports. Christian, Germany is the strongest European country in terms of industry. It also has, of course, a very central position in Europe. So how is the situation there? How is the industrial sector currently doing? And how interdependent is Germany with Russia in general? 
Yeah, well, this is actually quite a tricky question if you ask it like that, because um, if you are only looking at the direct trade, for example, direct trade of goods, then you have to say that the dependence is quite small. The trade relationships have decreased actually since yeah, the invasion of the Crimea Peninsula, which was already in 2014. So This has decreased a lot in the last years. And right now in 2021, where we have the latest trade data, there you can see that actually it is only number 14 of German export partners. So technically, there's no really a big impact here. But it's not always about the direct effects, but also the indirect effects. And there the things that Srigos already said um, are coming in because we are very dependent on our supply countries, supply chain countries that are mostly in Central Eastern Europe. So if they cannot send us the products that we need because of the war in the Ukraine, then we have also problems. So it's more the second round effect that has an impact when we talk about direct trade. And how is Germany doing on the energy front? Well, as you would think, not good. And actually, this is the case for everywhere in uh, Western Europe. All of us have to fight with a very high energy prices, especially gas prices, because, well, Germany or the German government concentrated a lot on cheap gas. Now nothing is coming anymore through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. And this means if Germany does not get its gas from Russia, it has to go to other sources. And this makes the market or the supply is the same in, in Europe. And this makes the market quite uh, small now because Germany is now more and more buying gas from Norway, from the Netherlands, from Belgium, asking for Algeria. So this means that right now we are also focusing more on coal and even nuclear energy. And here you have to keep in mind that this is coming from an economic minister who is a green minister. So the Green Party, who is actually built on the base of the anti-nuclear movement, is now asking for a longer time that nuclear plants are working at least in reserve. So, um, yeah, this since 2022, really, the world has gone upside down for Germany. Tatiana, another question for you. Over the past decades, we have tended to analyze these countries as a block. Does it still make sense in today's context? No, it doesn't make sense anymore. In any case, it is hard to talk about any kind of bloc that will be united in an economic, political or ideological sense. Russia sought to recreate this kind of bloc with ex-USSR countries, while also counting on the support of countries such as China and India. Unsurprisingly, though, there is no alliance here, as these countries have not backed Russia's action unconditionally. Even back in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, its actions were not openly supported by these countries, which stayed neutral, issuing at times ambiguous statements that both supported Ukraine's territorial integrity, but also condoned Russia's action as a counterweight to Western dominance. So do you think that this is the end of the road for the existing regional economic organizations? Are we going to see new kinds of alliances, maybe? That is a critical question. I honestly believe that this war is going to have a massive impact on how these regional organizations function. 
The Eurasian Economic Union, which is modeled on the EU, has a Eurasian Economic Commission, common custom tariffs and so on. Yet member states, besides Russia, were fearful that Russia would dominate the organization. And for this reason, they rejected a single currency and political integration. So even before the war, there was considerable wariness, and the conflict is obviously fueling this trend further. It could be that this spells the end for the Eurasian Economic Union. The Collective Security Treaty Organization is another regional organization plagued with considerable difficulties. For one thing, Armenia, which is a CSTO member, and Azerbaijan, which is not, are currently at war. In theory, given that the CSTO is modeled on NATO, other members are supposed to assist any member that is attacked. But Russia is obviously occupied elsewhere, while the other members are not planning to send troops to help Armenia either. Meanwhile, another conflict is underway between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, two other CSTO members. Plainly, this is a collective security organization with serious limitations. Grzegorz, what about the existing partnerships and cooperation with Eastern Europe? What does it mean in the long term? Well, basically, in case of cooperation with Russia, we do not have something like, for example, Russia already has already had with other countries, former Soviet Union countries, I mean here mostly Eurasia Economic Union. And with Central Eastern European countries or with General Europe, we see that this is cooperation that was done in various fields, mostly, as we mentioned before, in terms of various commodity imports coming from Russia. Russia. But here I would mention nevertheless some countries that were more active and actually are still active in cooperating with Russia. Here I mean mostly Hungary, uh, which uh, is still supplied uh, by uh, Russia energy commodities. Uh, and then we have also Serbia, for example, from Balkan countries, where the cooperation with Russia has been much stronger. And actually also lots of FDI, so foreign direct investments, uh, came from Russia. Of course, the war in Ukraine brings a peak human issue. The refugees from Ukraine are coming to the neighboring countries in Eastern Europe. Um, we're thinking of borders countries, of course. So how is the situation developing? Many of them probably go to Poland, um, the two countries share borders, of course. What are the social effects? Um, what, what is the impact on the population, on the workforce? Yeah, I fully agree with you. It's a huge humanitarian crisis because according to latest available data, nearly 7.5 million Ukrainians fled Ukraine since the beginning of this war. And that's huge. That's a huge amount of people. We see also in data that roughly 4 million people are registered in different countries, not only in Europe, but also they approached uh, other destinations. Uh, here, I agree that uh, it seems that Poland uh, was the country of the first choice for, for a bulk of Ukrainians. Uh, as of now, we have 1.4 million people from Ukraine registered uh, in Poland. It's also the consequence not only of the geographical proximity, but also previous movements of people that they emigrated to Poland to work here, as uh, it was quite attractive labor market for them, close uh, to their home country. But right now, we can say that of 
of course, uh, it is different. Previously, we've seen an inflow of uh, Ukraine workers just uh, to, uh, to to our labor market. Right now, uh, we see that uh, this is a different. There, there are people coming with their families, whole families. Uh, they do not always can work because they have to take care of their families. So, indeed, for the from the budget point of view, that's also a kind of, of burden, but just only from the economical point of view. And on the other hand, the inflow of Ukraine refugees also somehow, maybe not fully, but some, uh, but partly it helps labor shortages that we have in Poland and also in other Central Eastern European countries. So all in all, this effect, uh, as of now, again, beside the humanitarian crisis, which is the most important one here, also is a relief for the labor shortages, where the economic cost, I mean the budgetary cost, is quite limited because uh, these people got permission to work, uh, their kids got also permission to, to go to schools. So overall, the, the effect, they, they just uh, became uh, inhabitants uh, in Poland and also in other countries. Do you think that in the end, the effect could be positive? Yes, because actually in short term effects were very positive, I would say, because for retail sales, also in the new housing market we've seen in Poland that not only refugees were coming that usually connect with refugees, so rather poor people, but also people that were more wealthy. We've seen in the new housing market that uh, some refugees from Ukraine were buying a new housing here, and, and that was also a trigger and, and a support for the construction sector. And so that was in the short term. In the long term, I would expect that this effect will be quite neutral, especially that uh, basing on uh, various surveys that are um, done among people that immigrated from Ukraine, they are willing to come back home someday. So uh, when they're hopefully when the war is finished, uh, then they would uh, like to come back home. Likely not 100% of them, but a bulk uh, report that uh, they would like to come back to Ukraine. Kirsten, what about the situation in Germany? How are refugees perceived? Yeah, that's the really interesting thing here, because, I mean, we in Germany are very used to refugees by now. We were the main country which took on refugees uh, in 2015, 2016 with the civil war in Syria and also with refugees coming from Northern Africa and Afghanistan. And um, yeah, right at the beginning, there was quite a lot of uh, motivation in the population, but then it decreased a lot and it actually built up the profile of the current AFD, our right-wing party, Alternative für Deutschland. But now with the refugees of the Ukraine, first I have to say there are definitely less people than the wave that we saw in 2015-16, that's for sure. But on the other hand, it is a completely different stand towards them. People will never think that they are just leaving. They are leaving because of a war in Europe. And this seems to be way more closer to the people, to their hearts than um, civil war in Syria, which seemed more far away. So people have really no problems with the People from Ukraine, on the contrary, they are really trying to integrate them as fast as they can. We see, of course, that due to our practice with refugees from other parts of the world, we have a lot of infrastructure, a lot of organization put in place for this situation so that in the media, they are not really popping up at all. The only 
way where we actually see refugees in terms of, of numbers in media is due to uh, the labor market. We see an increase in unemployment because people from the Ukraine are now registered in Germany and are now also going into our labor market, but more on a positive term this way, because we expect that we really need them to help us with our demographic change, that more and more people from uh, the 1950s generation are retired We need more people in our labor market. So in this term, Ukraine refugees are very welcomed in Germany. Tatiana, I would like to come back to what you said before about a new multivector world. What is your take on the new relationship between China and Russia? There is certainly a possibility that we could see the emergence of a multipolar world. This is something that Russia has pushing hard since the era of former President Boris Yeltsin and his then foreign minister Yevgeny Primakov. In this multipolar world, no single power would dominate, but different poles would have their own spheres of influence while interacting. Russia is clearly pushing in this direction and hopes to carve out a place for itself as a regional power center. Russia faces a huge risk that its influence could fade. It could be the real loser from the war and be left more economically, financially and technologically reliant on China. It is important to remember that China is not an ally but a valuable partner. With Western sanctions hammering Russia's economy, China provides a key economic outlet. Yet China's position is highly ambiguous, particularly in terms of its political support. On the UN Security Council, China mainly abstains from voting on resolutions condemning Russia's actions. And in some official statements, China rejects unilateral sanctions on Russia and the U.S. global domination more generally. At the same time, Chinese global companies are heavily dependent on Western technologies and on the U.S. and European markets, to which China sells lots of goods. These firms are applying Western sanctions and cutting back their investments in Russia. Even if trade volumes are currently on the rise because China has upped its oil and gas purchases since the start of the war, at significant discount of up to 30%. So taking a pragmatic and almost cynical perspective, China is benefiting from the current situation. However, it does not want Russia to crumble completely, hence its highly ambiguous policy. Tatiana, Christiane, Grzegorz, thank you very much for helping us unpacking the complex economic and geopolitical situation that we are in right now. Goodbye. Thank you, goodbye. Merci beaucoup et au revoir. I am Ingrid Lebuzon, journalist for COFAS. Please tune in to our next podcast and in the meantime, head over to COFAS.com for all of COFAS's country and sector risk analysis.